In Drink the Wild Air, we're going to be talking to people who, in different ways, explore the limits of what might be possible. Scientists, explorers, artists and thinkers who ask questions that reframe our reality. People, in short, who are different from most of us. Never happier than when, as Lewis Carroll might have put it, dreaming up six impossible things before breakfast. Yet while they are exceptional, they also remind us of the adventure inside all of us, of the thrill of those moments when we look at the world around us and realise it is infinitely remarkable. The engineering was, to put it mildly, extreme. No submersible had ever gone to the bottom of the ocean and gone back because they had suffered so much in terms of damage from the incredible pressure. Victor Vescovo jokes that he loves boring expeditions, yet he has been both to space and the bottom of the ocean, and his achievements have won him, among other things, the Explorers Club medal, the highest accolade possible for an adventurer today. I'm Rachel Halliburton, and I caught up with him in the historic Duke's Hotel St James's, a place famous not least for the fact that James Bond creator Ian Fleming used to drink there. There he described to me experiences that would give even 007 a run for his money. Victor Vescovo, in 2010, you climbed Mount Everest and earlier this year you travelled into space. Yet, while those are both remarkable achievements, they're not what defines you. You have arguably done more than any one individual to advance exploration in the deepest parts of our oceans. In April 2019, you set a new record for the world's deepest dive when you took a specially designed submersible to the bottom of Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. Can you describe the moment when you realised you had succeeded in your mission? I think the first dive to the bottom of Challenger Deep, the primary sensation that you feel is very similar to when you get to the very top of a difficult mountain. It's actually a feeling of relief because you have done so much up to that point to prepare, to build a system, or in the case of mountain climbing, climbing for day after day, that when you finally get there, there's the relief that, we actually did it. Nothing is going to stop us. So it really is the first emotion. The second emotion is obviously one of delight that it was actually achieved. So you're actually very happy, you're excited. And at Challenger Deep, it was no less so because we hadn't actually tested the submarine at that depth before. So the fact that it was still intact, all the systems were working okay, was a very satisfying moment. And then in the case of the limiting factor at the bottom of Marion Trench, then I felt like a, a young kid where here I was with a craft of my own creation at the bottom of the ocean, and I had no real plan. And I could simply you know, put my hand on the thruster and begin exploring like I did when I was a young boy with my first bicycle. An extraordinary moment. Yeah, it was great. Uh, you've talked about the difference between going to space and, and going to the bottom of the sea, and uh, that, that going to space was almost just being, like being launched on a big bomb. <laughs> yeah, pretty much so. Uh, I think it's... I've had a really interesting experience because so many people want to portray things as this or that. But in a way, for me, it's almost become like a triangle between going to the summit of Everest, to the bottom of the ocean, and into space. All three are quite different and give a different perspective on the Earth. Climbing a mountain is very raw, very physical. You are beaten down. You lose a lot of weight. You're at great physical risk. Uh, if you miss a rope or something like that. And so it's a very different experience. And of course, the views can be astounding. Going into space was just very technical, but just so fast and violent almost. You're strapped to a 10-story bomb and being lofted at Mach 3 to go into space, and then you're in weightlessness. And before you know it, you're screaming back to the Earth at 5Gs, parachutes deploy, and then you you know, hit the bottom of the Earth and 
you're like, okay, that just happened. And then going to the very bottom of the ocean is a much slower, peaceful, almost cerebral experience. And when you get to the bottom, you can't see very far. So it naturally turns you inward mentally. And yet you're among these rocks in the seafloor that is probably some of the oldest terrain on the planet. So it, it feels ancient. And you get a very strong sense of just how brief our lives are, that we're a small part of a much larger world, which is kind of the opposite in, when you go into space, where you feel like you're the center of the universe because you can see so much and there's so much excitement. So I feel very fortunate that I've been able to experience all three of these incredibly different vistas of not just the Earth, but also how human beings experience them. I'd like to talk about precisely what the challenges were of this descent. Um, pressure is measured in bars, and <laughs> the bottom of the Mariana Trench is meant to have 1,086 bars of pressure. Yeah. One scientist explained this by saying that the pressure would feel like having 100 elephants standing on your head. I'm always suspicious of statistics which are, are that neat, but if there'd been anything wrong with your submersible, you would have been wiped out in seconds. Um, can you talk to us about this extraordinary machine, which I, I believe you had built for $50 million? Well, the entire system was uh, about that. And it is a full system where the submersible, of course, is the bell of the ball, as we say in, in America, where she uh, had most of the attention. But the support ship was no less important because that allowed for us to live on the ship and take it to the places it needed to go. There was also a very powerful sonar that allowed us to map the seafloor so we knew where we were going and knew that it was the deepest point. And then there were the three robotic landers that would also go down with the submersible that acted as not only navigation beacons on the bottom so I could navigate because there's no radio, there's no GPS underwater, but also did a tremendous amount of scientific collection and exploration. So it was a whole system. But the submersible was, of course, what I was in, so that received uh, the most attention. But the engineering was to put it mildly, extreme. No submersible had ever gone to the bottom of the ocean and gone back because they had suffered so much in terms of damage from the incredible pressure, but also the freezing temperatures and the corrosive salt water. So that combination is not really friendly to electronics, which is really the heart and soul of a lot of the systems on the submersible. So a lot of thought went into the engineering and making it as fail-safe as possible. So yes, if there'd been a catastrophic pressure failure of some kind, I would have been gone within a millisecond because of that extraordinary pressure. But it was designed to be fail-safe. In fact, the principal way we tried to design it was that the laws of physics would have to be violated for me not to come back. And so there were so many systems such that if they failed, they failed in a way that actually created and used that pressure to seal the submarine even better. Now, it might have been more difficult to repair or get me out, but that was the process, and that made me feel very, very safe when I was in the submersible. The number one threat to a submersible is actually entanglement. So the most dangerous dive that I did was probably on the RMS Titanic, where I did the first solo dive on Titanic, and I observed quickly that because of the very strong currents and the limited visibility, that it actually was quite dangerous because of the cables, the unpredictable nature of the wreck, the current. And if I had gotten entangled, we had measures to deal with that where I could eject parts of the submarine that might become entangled, but that's putting yourself in a very difficult position where if that circuit fails and you do not release that bit of the sub that is entangled, there's nothing you can do about it. And um, Before we talk more about the many things you've done with the limiting factor, um, I'd like to talk to you about exactly what drives you. 
Um, you've always had a thirst for adventure. Uh, you wanted to be a fighter pilot, but you couldn't because of your eyesight. So you trained as a civilian pilot. Mm -hmm. um, you've also worked as an intelligence officer for the US Navy Reserve for 20 years and then went into the very different cutthroat world of private equity. Mm -hmm. um, some scientists say that life's big risk takers have certain genetic markers in their DNA. And I believe you've been tested for these, haven't you? And not surprisingly, scored very highly. Uh, can you talk about the importance of risk in your life and about the link between risk and who you are? Sure. I, I haven't actually been tested for those alleged genetic markers, but I think it's highly likely that if I was, that I would probably have, I think there are 11 of them that are, tend to be pretty definitive. I probably have most of them. And I think there is definitely a genetic component, but there's also, I think, a societal element. My parents were very indulgent of me in terms of me wanting to go exploring, but I do have this almost insatiable curiosity and desire to see what's on the other side of that hill. For example, just here in London where we are today, I would like nothing better than to just have an afternoon just to go explore because I've never seen it. And so I think exploration is just part of my nature. And then if I wasn't exploring or trying to push some technological boundary, I wouldn't be happy. So we all do what makes us happy. For some people, it's family life. For other people, it's their work. For me, it's satisfying the sensational curiosity that I have. And it's taken me in many different directions, and I satisfy it in different ways, not just with deep ocean diving, but also things that I do in finance or in other endeavors. It was December 2018 when you started your expedition to go to the five deeps, the deepest point of each of our five oceans. Uh, you started with the Atlantic Ocean's Puerto Rico Trench. You've also been to the Antarctic Ocean's South Sandwich Trench, the Indian Ocean's Java Trench, the Malloy Deep between the Arctic Ocean and the Norwegian Seas, and of course the Mariana Trench. You've talked about the danger of uh, visiting wrecks, but um, which of these particular descents to the bottom of the ocean felt the most dangerous and why? Well, actually, it was one that you did not mention because there was actually a puzzle in the Pacific Ocean of where the deepest point in the Pacific Ocean was. It was highly theorized that the Mariana Trench was the deepest, and there was a lot of evidence to back that up, but the Tonga Trench was actually quite close in depth, and no one had ever physically measured it. No one had ever been there. And so we felt it incumbent upon ourselves to actually physically survey that trench as well, just to make sure, because it was close. And I dove that trench solo, and it turned out to be only about 110 meters shallower than the Challenger Deep. We were actually pulling for it. We were hoping it was deeper, because that would have caused everyone to have to rewrite the books. But uh, it, it was that way. But there was a problem with the submersible when I actually got four hours down to the bottom of the Tonga Trench. I actually had an uncontrollable electrical discharge in one of my batteries, which is a polite euphemism for saying there was actually a fire in the battery. But at that depth, with that level of pressure, there was no actual flame, but I had several kilowatts of power just dumping and charring and burning components only a, a foot or two away from me outside the pressure vessel. So this was not happening inside the pressure vessel where it would have been a serious problem, but it still was an issue. And I d got indications in the sub where my electrical status board was lighting up like a Christmas tree with red and green lights. And just like what happens in an aircraft, because I'm a pilot, is you try and diagnose what is the biggest problem that is causing all these other ones. And it turned out that one of the batteries had failed pretty significantly. So I shut it down and I isolated all the other systems. I did what I was supposed to do. And I actually, because I was at the Tonga Trench and no one had ever been there, I felt it incumbent to continue the mission for about another hour using the other 
side of the submersible whose power systems were insulated from the other one. We always had dual functionality. So I was able to continue the mission for an hour. But after about an hour, I said, you know, this probably isn't the safest place to remain. And so I dropped my weights and I came back up. And four hours later, when the submersible actually got to the surface, when it got fresh oxygen and it was no longer under pressure, yes, it started smoking and all that again. And I was actually warned by the topside crew on the radio on the surface. They said, yeah, Victor, when you leave the submarine, you should be forewarned that you're going to smell things burning. We put it out, but you're okay. And, uh, you know, we'll take a look at what happened. Officially, exploration of the ocean floor started in the 16th century, but at that point it involved... It was in the Thames, actually. I think most people don't know that, but I did my research because I I constructed a submersible. So I was, what was the first submersible? A lot of people think it was the turtle in America, but it wasn't. There was an Englishman who built basically a shelled rowboat and it would go a little bit underwater and it was test driven here in the Thames. I've forgotten the individual's name, but it was demonstrated for the king. And I'm sure they said, well, that's interesting. And like many submersibles, I doubt it ever dove again. But it was the first. So jolly good for the English. That's an extraordinary thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, things obviously got much, much more sophisticated in the, the 19th century. And, and then, of course, in the early 20th century, sonic and ultrasonic devices really started to give a sense of the scale of what scientists were looking at. Yet it's really only in the 21st century that we've started to have the technology to appreciate quite what an alternative world it is. What do you think the most important technology is and what does it help you to discover? I guess I'm heavily biased, but I think that a combination of multi-beam sonar as well as just the technology to allow devices, whether they're human-occupied or robotic, to withstand the pressures of the deep are the two most important. Because it's hard for me to separate the two because you need sonar to see underwater and without seeing you can't do very much but then you also need to be able to be present there to investigate what's in the ocean and to that you need very durable vessels i think most people fail to realize two very important statistics which is the earth is 71 percent water and therefore most of our planet is ocean it's not land and on top of that if you took the average environmental condition on planet earth it would be underwater and at about 4,000 meters. That's the average location on Earth. And yet we know so little about it. We've explored less than 25% of the seafloor. And so half of planet Earth remains unexplored. And people will remark, well, it's just ocean. You know, what could be there? And I think that that's a little bit uh, unfair to the ocean because it actually has the greatest amount of biodiversity and most of the biomass on this planet And when we're thinking about climate change and we're trying to build climate models, how can you do that if you don't fully understand the ocean currents, the heat sink capability of the oceans, the biology of it? And in order to understand that, you need those two technologies. And that's maybe the primary motivation I had for the five deeps. It was really a technological mission. I felt that someone, why not me, had to build the technology for reusable technology to allow us to go to any point on the seafloor repeatedly and safely. And now that we've opened that door, hopefully more people will be able to do it. And it's not just about understanding what's going on in our own world, is it? I mean, the fact is, there is a strong connection between submarine exploration and extraterrestrial exploration. NASA is just one of the organisations that uh, has missions down into uh, life below the ocean surface, especially in the area known as the Hadal Zone. Mm -hmm. 
Could you explain to us what the Hadal zone is and why it's of such interest? Interesting. The word Hadal comes from the word Hades, which means hell. So below 6,000 meters is the so-called Hadal zone in the ocean. And it's extremely dark, really below that level. There are no photons. So it's the blackest black your eye can ever see because there is absolutely no light. And because of the conditions, the pressure, the the freezing temperatures, you end up with life that is completely different than what you would have up here on Earth. In fact, when we go to the bottom of the deep ocean trenches, we will often see bacterial mats, which doesn't sound too exciting, but they're, they can be quite beautiful, gold in color or even red. And they are living off the minerals and the gases that are seeping out from the rocks. Because there is no light, there's no energy from the surface. So they have to generate energy and survive in a completely different way than we do here on Earth. And that is what gets astrophysicists and exobiologists excited because if there is life on other planets, it may bear much more resemblance to that that we find in the deep ocean trenches than what we find you know, on the surface in our national parks. And so I'm extremely excited and hopeful that some of the technologies that we have helped develop could be used for deep space probes on Ganymede or Europa where they can penetrate the ice on the surface of those planetoids and hopefully find active life. And I would not be shocked at all if it bears significant resemblance to what we have found in the deep ocean trenches. You worked in naval intelligence, and one of the recent important geopolitical events that have taken place have been the explosions at the Nord Stream pipelines (laughs) below the Baltic Sea in September. We, it seems, are entering a new era of submarine warfare, um, which is potentially directed at the many cables and pipes below the ocean for oil and natural gas that keep our civilization going. Um, we apparently have enough fibre optic cables alone to stretch to the moon and back. You could do so much damage by targeting the ocean floor. How do we begin to protect these fragile infrastructures against attacks from hostile powers like Russia? It doesn't even have to be hostile powers. Myself as a private citizen could do it. That's what's so amazingly dangerous about the situation, I think, and one that is greatly underappreciated because on the seafloor, there's an enormous amount of natural gas pipelines. There are cables, as you mentioned, but getting to them is actually not that difficult, especially now. The Nord Stream pipeline was in only 100 meters of water, so you can still get light from the surface to actually see it. Any number of commercial vessels could have gone down there and laid explosives. So a private citizen could have done it, and it could be done again. And I think people are finally waking up to the vulnerability of these assets. Now, are there backup systems in place, whether they be fiber optic or ways to shut off the pipelines and use it? Yes, but one can imagine the economic and political shock of five Nord Streams happening all at once all over the world. It could be a major seismic event that could cause financial markets to be destabilized, that could cause significant disruption to energy flows. And therefore, to answer your question, how do you guard against it? I actually don't know how. There's so many points of vulnerability, and they're so long, and so much of them are in relatively shallow water, which I would consider under 1,000 meters, which is easily accessible by any number of commercial submersibles. And getting large payloads down there is not that hard because we're usually carrying payloads as our ballast. And so letting them go on top of a critical asset would not be difficult at all. And I just don't know how you actually stop it easily. 
There are big organisations um, who are trying to map the ocean floor, uh, not for sinister reasons, <laughs> including uh, the the Nippon Foundation, uh, GEBCO, and the US's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, to which I believe you are attached. Mm-hmm. There are cynics who worry about money being spent on such expeditions when it could be spent on health or housing. Can you talk about what you believe this kind of enterprise contributes to society as a whole? Well, I just come from a philosophy that I think that it's important to know the characterization of our world in the same way that in the 16th and other centuries, large amounts of money were funded for expeditions to explore what's on the other side of the ocean. And that led to the discovery of the Americas by Europe. They were obviously inhabited at the time. But I think that that is part of what we need to do just as a species, which is to spend at least some marginal amount of money to find out the characterization of our own oceans and mapping them, because that can have direct impacts on how we can predict earthquakes, tsunamis that can cause significant destruction. I still think we have very little appreciation for what causes so many of these massive natural disasters, and many of the clues to them could be within our reach if we just knew more about the seafloor. At least many of the scientists that I've spoken to believe that. And I agree that there are other priorities as well that we should be spending money on any number of other causes, but I don't think it can be to the exclusion of science either. There needs to be a balance, as with all things in life. You have been described as the Elon Musk of the seabed. Oh, God. (laughs) I have enormous respect for Elon. I I would not put myself in that category, but okay, we'll we'll go with it. But it's a way of expressing the fact that what you're achieving with your venture, Caladan Oceanic, is, is comparable to SpaceX. In other words, to many people, you seem to eat, breathe and dream the impossible. Was there ever a moment when you worried you couldn't do something you'd set your mind to? And how did you get through that moment? I never really thought, especially in the case of the submersible limiting factor and the 5Ds expedition, that we would not be able to do it. Because I come from a philosophy that if something isn't violating physical law, it can be done. It may be extremely difficult and extremely expensive, but it can get done. It's just a question of resources, time, and persistence, which is probably one of the most underappreciated characters, uh, characterizations of, of human beings. But there were times when we had issues with the submersible where I thought, you know, we're deploying it too early. We haven't worked out a lot of the issues, and we may need to take a time out and really apply ourselves, maybe take a year and identify what's wrong and fix them. And those are kind of tough moments because that comes at great expense and enormous psychological letdown and cost you time, which is probably the most valuable resource. And how you get through them, you just work the problem. I'm sure my own crew got tired of me saying that, but it's just about, okay, where are we? What went wrong? What do we think went wrong? Doing the investigation, not blaming people, but attacking the problem and then getting to root cause. We're meeting at quite a pivotal moment for you. Uh, You've just sold your entire diving system, the ship Pressure Drop, and your submersible, the limiting factor to Gabe Newell's Inkfish. Why now? You're still young. There's still a lot to explore. Agreed. The original intention of my mission was more of a technological one, to develop the technology to allow us to visit the seafloor anywhere reliably, repeatedly. So I really only had anticipated holding on to the system for a year to do the five deeps expedition, maybe two to do a couple of other ancillary expeditions. I've owned it for four, and it was a considerable investment of my own personal wealth. 
And it was my intention to actually recover that capital and then allow the system to be used for science by a government or another private organization so that I can now continue to do other things with it, including continuing to develop other deep ocean technologies, maybe for robotic vehicles or to also make investments in other companies. One company that I'm now associated with, I'm on the board of advisors, is Colossal Biosciences. Most people don't know that name, but they do know what they're about to try and do, which is to try and de-extinct the woolly mammoth. And so it's not just the woolly mammoth that we're going to try and de-extinct. We're trying to build a technology so that we could de-extinct any species. And then people get all concerned saying, oh my God, you're going to bring Jurassic Park back to life. We're not doing dinosaurs. We're trying to de-extinct animals that were obliterated by human activity, and they probably shouldn't be extinct, like the Tasmanian tiger and others. This June, you travelled beneath the Pacific to discover the wreck of the destroyer escort Samuel B. Roberts. Uh, It sank on October the 15th, 1944. Like all wrecks, it is in essence an underwater grave, and a dangerous one at that. There were um, unused depth charges around it. Can you talk about what it meant finding this relic of human existence in such inhuman surroundings? Yeah, wreck diving, particularly the military wrecks, especially as a Navy veteran, were very emotionally powerful for me to find them because it's unfortunate that so few people seem to know the history of these ships and the incredible sacrifice that these sailors made in these battles to defend their countries on both sides, to be quite frank. And finding them gave us the opportunity to retell their stories. And when you read the stories, they're almost like Hollywood scripts that, were, that actually happened. These were real people that were doing extraordinary things under insane conditions. And then to find their final resting places when they had just disappeared one day in a battle also gave closure, I think, to a lot of their families. I've gotten a lot of outreach from them saying, thank you so much for finding the wreck. You know, my uncle or my great grandfather, you know, died on that ship. And this is just wonderful to hear the story about why he gave his life in this battle. And it's a tribute to them. I'd like to ask you about your heroes. In the past, you've talked about Rose Amundsen. Mm-hmm. Amundsen, I think, succeeded in reaching the South Pole in part because as a Norwegian, he understood the challenges of snow and ice. What qualities do you particularly emulate from him? Oh, he's. Uh, I think my two favorite explorers are Roald Amundsen and also Charles Lindbergh, the American aviator that flew across the Atlantic for the first time. And I think what characterizes both of them is that they were driven n- not by the fame or the records. And I'm not driven that way either, although I think some people may believe I am. It's really about the mission, wanting to apply yourself and develop technology to do something no one's ever done before. That's the real exciting part for people like that. And Amundsen was so thorough. He was a incredible planner. He experimented with his equipment. He experimented with his teams. He thought about problems in a very methodical, careful way. So in a way, you, it's like being a stuntman where what you're doing is very dangerous, but you do it in such a way that you're mitigating as much risk as possible. I think Lindbergh did the same in his flight across the Atlantic. And so that's how I have approached expeditions as well. And some other explorers that tended to have a lot more maybe intuitive drive and maybe just more excitement and more passion, just thinking if we apply enough energy and rage against the problem, we can solve anything. Well, nature is very, very unforgiving. So if you don't give it proper respect, she can kill you. And I think, unfortunately, some explorers that aren't as methodical as Amundsen and Lindbergh have found that to their detriment. So I've tried to model my own expeditions on them. I've been frequently quoted as saying, I love boring expeditions. 
I like I like for them to go off where it's basically just checking the boxes and you get it done. That's how they should be done. And I think by the end of our expeditions just recently, that's what it was like. We did four dives to the bottom of Challenger Deep in just over a little bit of a week. And it was like clockwork. That's what we were striving to achieve. I've now been to the bottom of Challenger Deep 15 times. And I think that's not because each time was an incredibly dangerous endeavor. It wasn't, but that's the point. We made it so it's not dangerous, that it is predictable. You grew up in Dallas, Texas. Yes, I'm a proud Texan. How did your background inform what you've done? Oh, well, I think there's something to being a Texan. I think it's like a couple of other cultures. I, I identify a lot with the Scots as well. You know, it's very independent kind of personality that's bred there. A lot of self-reliance and almost a worship of individuality is the culture of the state that I come from. And so I think that that actually has an impact on how I viewed life, how I attack it. And um, yeah, I just think that's a core part of who I am. Glaciologists in the Antarctic have discovered evidence of human pollution in landscapes never officially touched by humans. Is there anywhere in the depths of the oceans that hasn't been affected by our often destructive species? No, it's unfortunate in that at least half of the deep ocean trenches that I've been in, and I've been in 17, I've seen some evidence of human contamination. Very disturbingly, in the Philippine Trench, we were scooting along the bottom and we came across a teddy bear and its black eyes were looking right back at me. That was a little unusual and disconcerting. So yeah, that happened. And then in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea at the Calypso Deep, I was with Prince Albert of Monaco, and we probably saw more human contamination in that trench than any other by far. Just so much refuse is dumped in the ocean. And it doesn't just vanish if you throw something into the ocean. It just goes to the bottom, and then it stays there forever. But the most pernicious problem is actually microplastics. Once plastic hits the ocean, the combination of the acidity of the ocean and the sunlight breaks it down, and those microparticles end up being dissipated throughout the entire world ocean. Are you the person who's covered the greatest vertical distance between Earth and outer space? Is that correct? No, I think uh, actually Dr. Kathy Sullivan, who I took down, who is the first woman to the bottom of Challenger Deep, she's done spacewalks and worked on Hubble. So she went up a lot higher than I did. So I think she may hold the record. But it's, uh, it's something that appeals to you, that, that kind of sense of attaining this. Oh, I would love to go to the moon if I could. Good heavens. Of course I would. Yes. Uh, but it's not about the records. And I know I get excited because like, you know, we, as a team, have broken many records. But I just like pushing the boundaries of technology and pushing myself to go to those places that so few people have. That's really the motivation. I want to ask you about what informs you culturally. Uh, so I want to ask you, first of all, about a book that has inspired you, a film, and a piece of music. Oh, good heavens. A book that inspired, probably my favorite book of all time, because I'm a voracious reader of science fiction, is uh, Dune by Frank Herbert. And I'm so happy that the movie came out recently, which I thought they very, did a very good treatment, because I think it's really focused on the human condition and human capabilities, where it's a universe where technology was actually, in many respects, outlawed, and people were forced to develop their own powers. And it also shows a lot of people failing and making mistakes, which is what part of life is about. I love classical music, and, and so it's hard to pinpoint them, but uh, just getting some good Bach or Mozart, some of their wonderful concertos. The Brandenburg concertos by Bach might be maybe one of my favorite. Vivaldi, of course, I'm partly of Italian descent, so that's good happy music, which I adore. Uh, I think Saving Private Ryan, I'm a huge 
fan of military history because I think we so often fail to learn from history. And I think they put into a movie the experience of just how awful combat and war is. Thank God I've actually never had to be in combat, even though I was in the Navy for 20 years. But I think it just showed what a waste that it is and how we have to appreciate what we put these people through when we put them into combat areas. And that so many times politicians don't fully appreciate the cost of actual military action. So I think in that respect, it wasn't just such a great film from the acting, the script, the story, but also the message that it sent. That was very anti-war in my view, which I think can't be repeated often enough. Even as someone that was served for 20 years, I am a staunch anti-war person. You've already talked a bit about bringing species back from extinction and you are only 56. Is this going to be your main next adventure? Is this what you're planning to do for the next? No, that's just one of them. I'm also making other investments in industrial products because I'm primarily an industrial investor in private equity. I'm working, I'm primarily a specialist in defense and aerospace. So I'm actually trying to develop technologies that can actually be used for any number of, you know, positive uses, I think, in defense, but also in life sciences. I'm starting to get involved in some uh, companies that are involved in genetic research to hopefully treat some diseases. But I'm also going to stay involved in technology development on the hardware side for deep ocean since I've spent a lot of time down there. So I like being involved in multiple things. That way I can achieve more, I hope, in the time that I have left. Victor Viscovi, thank you very much. <laughs>